When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, the Great Pyramid Hoax, the conspiracy to conceal the true history of ancient Egypt. Tutankhamun is the only in situ king that has ever been found, but his body was found in the Valley of the Kings in a, a shaft tomb buried deep into the mountainside. It's not in a pyramid. No bodies of any kings have been found in any of the If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. That's over 350 episodes. To subscribe, just go to ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com and click on Gain access to premium episodes. Again, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get Access to Premium Episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. While you're enjoying this episode, my boys and I are hopefully landing some smallmouth bass or maybe even a pike on Wards Island here in Toronto. I'll let you know how we made out on my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett. Stay tuned for that, and thanks for listening. Despite millennia of fame, the origins of the Great Pyramid of Giza are shrouded in mystery. Believed to be the tomb of an Egyptian king, even though no remains have ever been found, its construction date of roughly 2550 BCE is tied to only one piece of evidence, the crudely painted marks within the pyramid's hidden chambers that refer to the 4th dynasty King Khufu, discovered in 1837 by Colonel Howard Weiss and his team. Using evidence from the time of the discovery of these quarry marks, including surveys, facsimile drawings, and Weiss's private field notes, along with the high-definition photos of the actual marks, Scott Creighton reveals how and why the marks were faked. He investigates the anomalous and contradictory orthography of the quarry marks through more than 75 photos and illustrations, showing how they radically depart from the established canon of quarry marks from this period. He explains how the orientation of the Khufu cartouche contradicts ancient Egyptian writing convention and how one of the signs is from a later period. Analyzing Weiss's private diary, Scott reveals Weiss's forgery instructions to his two assistants, Raven and Hill, and what the anachronistic sign should have been. He examines recent chemical analysis of the marks, along with the eyewitness testimony of Humphreys Brewer, who worked with Weiss at Giza in 1837 and saw forgery take place. Exploring Weiss's background, including his electoral fraud to become a member of the British Parliament, Scott explains why he was driven to perpetrate a fraud inside the Great Pyramid. Scott Creighton is an engineer whose extensive travels have allowed him to explore many of the world's ancient sacred sites. The host of the Alternative Egyptology Forum on AboveTopSecret.com, Scott is the author of The Secret Chamber of Osiris and co-author of The Giza Prophecy. He lives in Glasgow, Scotland. His latest book is The Great Pyramid Hoax, The Conspiracy to Conceal the True History of Ancient Egypt. Scott Creighton, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? 
I'm very well, Richard. It's uh, good to talk to you. Likewise. And uh, uh, you're in Glasgow, Scotland. What's it like over there? Um, well, it's very dark at the moment. It's just after, <laughs> it's just after um, 12, 12, um, uh, well, 12 a.m. Uh, yeah, 12 a.m. So it's uh, the wee small hours here, so um, it's a bit dark, a wee bit cold. But um, I've got a nice big cup of coffee here, so that should keep me going. Excellent. Well, we appreciate you staying up late and hanging out with us for the next hour. Now, you know, it's not surprising uh, that someone with an engineering background, and you are an engineer, that you would have this opportunity to travel and visit places like the Great Pyramids at Giza. But I'm wondering how difficult is it for someone, I'm going to say someone on the outside, because the field of Egyptology, it strikes me as being very sort of closed and very cliquish. There's an established orthodoxy. There is a, a select few that control who gets access to the pyramids, who funds that work, and so forth. How difficult was it for you to break into that field? Well, I'm still very much outside of that field to a large extent, um, Richard. Um, basically, I'm running around the, the outskirts of it, finding um, information, gathering information together, piecing it all together to... Um, build up um, my own narrative, my own view of um, what these structures were all about. A lot of the times, I think, it actually requires someone on the outside of a particular discipline to do this because, you know, it's hard for um, people within the discipline to rock the boat, as it were, um, you know, because they've got their careers to think about. You know, if they rock the boat too much within, you know, the discipline of Egyptology, you know, it can have bad repercussions for their career. And I'm not just saying that. I know that um, as a matter of fact. I have some Egyptologist friends who have um, told me that, that very thing. You know, so um, it's, it's probably actually, in a sense, easier for someone like myself to do this kind of thing because, you know, the, the, the people inside Egyptology, they really don't want to go there. They've got their, as I said, you know, they've got their careers to think about. If they, you know, see anything that's untoward or that's unconventional, goes against the grain, you know, they, they could be, you know, next time they go to get a grant, a research grant, you know, that could, um, you know, you know, be they just don't get it, you know, or if they want to, um, you know, try and get a research permit sure. uh, yeah. somewhere Tec in Egypt. Entire textbooks you know. would have to be wi uh, rewritten. And as you say, academic careers would be on the line. We see this in across many fields, yeah. but it really does not augur well for scientific pursuit because what the orthodox Egyptologists are saying is case closed, uh, the Great Pyramid of Giza, we can affix it to a particular time, historical context, 2550 BCE, the Fourth Dynasty, and we'll get into that. When anyone in the scientific field, and I don't care what area you're talking about, says case closed, that to me sets up red flags, because that is contrary to the whole scientific method. Absolutely, absolutely. And as you said, um, Richard, you find this not just in the fields of um, Egyptology, but right across um, the scientific field. You know, they say, you know, they talk about science as if it is, um, you know, the the barometer, you know, for for everything. You know, that is the the gold standard. But you know, science, you know, it's full of contradictions within itself. You know, take um, like the Sphinx, for example. You've got um, orthodox Egyptologists, they say it's about, you know, it's contemporary with the pyramids, about, you know, Giza, four and a half thousand years old. Then you have, have the likes of Dr. Robert Schock, he's saying it's not, not probably about seven thousand years old. And, you know, then they've got these other scientists, and um, these Russian scientists are saying, well, actually, no, the erosion on the Sphinx um, looks as though it's been caused by um, tidal um, energy waves, you know, sea waves, you know, tidal forces on the body of the Sphinx. That's, you know, their interpretation of the erosion. But the last time there was a sea covering that part of Egypt was 800,000 years ago. You know, <laughs> so here you have... That's a big problem. That's a big problem. It's a big problem. You know, scientists can't even agree among themselves. Indeed. Scott Creighton is with us, and the book is The Great Pyramid Hoax, The Conspiracy to Conceal the True History of Ancient Egypt. 
Now, scientists, Egyptologists, uh, protecting their reputation is one thing, but it's right here in the title of your book, The Great Pyramid Hoax, which obviously suggests uh, that there is something far more nefarious here, and we will get into that. But before we, we delve into that, and why you question the dating of the construction of the, the Great Pyramid of Giza. Give us, those of us who haven't been fortunate to be to the, the Giza Plateau, give us sort of a, a real quick guided tour of, of the plateau. Okay. Well, at Giza, you have, um, uh, presently there are nine visible pyramids. There are the three giant pyramids, um, the Pyramid of Khufu, Khafre, and Minkaura. And you ha- beside the, the Pyramid of Khufu, you've got three smaller pyramids. There's actually a very small one there as well, but, but or used to be there. It's no longer there. It's called, known as a cult pyramid, but we don't really talk about that. You have like three what are called the Queen's Pyramids beside the Great Pyramid of Khufu on the eastern side. The smallest of the three main pyramids at Giza, you have um, another set of three pyramids, or what are called Queen's Pyramids, to the south side of Minkaura's Pyramid, that's the, the smallest of the three largest pyramids at Giza. And also on the eastern side of the plateau you have the Great Sphinx. Um, now a lot of the discussion tonight will be about um, the relieving chambers of the Great Pyramid um, where these, um, this hoax essentially took place. Now these chambers um, are within the Great Pyramid. Inside the Great Pyramid you have three chambers. There's one Below the Great Pyramid, that's known as the subterranean chamber, then you have um, about 100 feet or so um, above the, in the, the body of the pyramid, you have the so-called Queen's Chamber, and then above that, about 200 feet up the pyramid, you have what's known as the King's Chamber. Now, there are small, there's a series of five small chambers above the King's Chamber of the Great Pyramid. These are known as the Relieving Chambers. And they each have um, a specific name. The first one is known as Davidson's Chamber. Above that, we have Nelson's cha- uh, sorry Wellington's Chamber, then Nelson's Chamber, then Lady Arbuthnot's Chamber, and finally, the very top chamber is known as Campbell's Chamber. And these chambers, uh, or four of them, were discovered in 1837 by Colonel Howard Weiss. The very first one, Davidson's Chamber, was opened about 70 years before Weiss. And, was discovered. and they're called relieving chambers because they serve some engineering uh, purpose, right? Well, this is this is a theory, Richard, but it's a bit of a strange theory that, you know, these chambers were placed above the king's chamber to try and deflect um, pressure off the, the roof of the king's chamber. But the strange thing is, that if you look at the queen's chamber, there are no... Um, relieving chambers above that, you know, um, ah. you just have the uh, the gabled blocks above, straight above the Queen's Chamber, and there's a lot, and because the Queen's Chamber is lower down in the the body of the pyramid, it's got a lot more weight above it. Right. You know, so it's 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 a contradiction there. You know, this is, <laughs> you know, scientists, engineers can't really figure, well, figure it out. Why or how was the the um the date of 2550 BCE affixed to the construction of the Giza Pyramid. Okay, Richard, what we have to um, um, remember here is that um, Herodotus, the, the Greek historian Herodotus, who lived about uh, two and a half thousand years ago, he mentioned in his writings that the Great Pyramid was um, built by um, Cheops, which um, Egyptologists and linguists have been able to later transliterate into the Egyptian form of Khufu. Yeah, that's okay. the confusing part, because a lot of these uh, pharaohs had at least four or five names. That's right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and not only that, but, you know, you have... Um, the, the, there's, like, two Greek names, you know. Um, Herodotus calls him um, uh, Cheops, and Manetho calls him Sufis, you know, so there's, there's, there's just all this... But they all, mean, they all meant uh, Khufu. Yeah, they all meant Khufu. Well, you mentioned, Herod- <laughs> you, all men- you mentioned Herodotus, and then if he believes the pyramid was constructed in 2550, because he was practically a contemporary. 
Well, no, um, Herodotus was writing 2,000 years oh, after. Oh, 2,000, I, my apologies, 500 BC, <laughs> you're right. Okay, so 2,000 yeah, years two and after. Yeah, 2,500 years ago, yeah, it says 500 BC. Got it, right. Uh, Herodotus was writing, and, you know, Herodotus is known as um, the, the father of history, but some, some people call him the father of lies. You know? <laughs> so the, we have to be uh, careful, uh, my wife is, is listening and she's Greek. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose they had, they had fake news even back then, you know. Right. So... <laughs> yes, indeed. Nothing you know, has changed. You know, so it's like Herodotus was, but he was writing 2,000 years after um, the pyramid. So we don't really know um, from Herodotus's writings um, exactly what was going on 2,000 years allegedly before his time, right. whether this Khufu was actually just repairing the Great Pyramid because there's some good evidence like from the inventory stellar, which tells us Khufu was repairing a lot of... Um, you know, monuments and, and structures at Giza. Ah, you know, okay. So the Great Pyramid could very well have been one of those structures that Khufu was actually repairing. Being repaired. Not actually building. Ah, but another historian, Josephus, also believed it was built in that time. Um, well, this uh, Josephus is, um, uh, he's, he's taking, he's building basically on the, the, the writings of Manetho. Um, you know, so they're all basically kind of, um, you know, taking... Um, you know, writing from from each other essentially. Right. So it becomes um, a house of cards. One, yeah, that's one, right. One, uh, one lie built on the other. One lie yeah, built upon just, the other. Yeah, that's right. You know, so um, because Egyptologists were able to, uh, they knew roughly when this guy Khufu lived. It was two thousand five hundred BC, four and a half thousand years ago. So because um, you know they weren't sure. Um, for definite, if um, Khufu was the builder of this pyramid, it was, it was more really sort of circumstantial evidence based on the writings of Herodotus and so forth. But then, in 1837, Colonel Weiss opens up these sealed chambers, these hidden sealed chambers within the Great Pyramid that hadn't been opened in four and a half thousand years. Right. Okay. Yeah, he blasted, he blasted in there with dynamite. Imagine someone trying to do that today. Well, it was gunpowder. Ah, yeah, gunpowder. dynamite okay. was invented later, I think. Okay. But it was gunpowder. Yeah, he blasted his way into this structure with um, gunpowder, and um, you know, supposedly found the cartouche of Khufu in these chambers, painted onto the wall with rough red ochre paint. Right. We need to talk the... about uh, hi how hieroglyphics are formed and and what a cartouche is—that oval shape yeah. around the hieroglyphics. So, talk to me about what a cartouche is. Well, a cartouche is um, basically, if you imagine um, a, a bullet cartridge, yeah, that's, it's, cartouche is from the French um, cartridge, ah. which is, um, you know, a bullet or shell of a, of a bullet, that's the kind of shape of a, a cartouche. And inside, it's a distinctive shape, and we, the signs, the hieroglyphic signs inside this um, cartouche shape always represent the name of the king. So the cartouche, when you see a cartouche, you know that's a king's name. Almost like okay? a royal seal or a coat of arms. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Exactly that. You know, so when you see the cartouche, you know what you're dealing with. You're dealing with the name of a king. And um, Howard Weiss allegedly found these cartouches inside um, these relieving chambers of the Great Pyramid. Now, let, just, uh, let me just stop you there, because if we go back uh, maybe a decade and a half earlier than than uh, Howard Weiss, because you mentioned the colonel blasted his way into the chamber at uh, the Great Pyramid of Giza in 1837, and it was yeah. only in the 1820s that they kind of figured out how these hieroglyphics worked, period, wasn't it? Yeah, it was um, uh, Champollion, um, the, the uh, French um, um, philologist um, Jean-Francois Champollion, he um, cracked the hieroglyphic code, um, I think, yeah, about the 1820s, about 15 years before Weiss went to, to Egypt. Um, you know, so you know, we're, we're talking about a, a time that's, you know, it was very early in the understanding of the ancient Egyptian language. But the thing is, um, the cartouche of Khufu um, was actually known before Vice went to Egypt, and that's crucial um, for for this forgery to have taken place. Um, the cartouche had been published w with, you know, the the name um, below the cartouche, Khufu or Sufis, yeah. And so Vice could very well have seen this and known 
what cartouche to put in these chambers. And and the um, the royal seal, if you will, or the cartouche of 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 the pharaoh Khufu. What what uh, what symbols uh, were involved? Well, there well there are four um, symbols which make up. Um, well, five if you include the cartouche itself. There are four symbols. You have a circle with um, some dashed lines. Um, then you have a, a bird, then a snake or a viper, and then another bird. You know, so um, the circle um, represents K or KH. It is, um, you know, like um, CH, um, as in like um, Loch. You know, we say Loch in right, Scotland, the right. CH. It's actually pronounced as in Loch. So it's actually Khufu as opposed to Khufu, but most people just say Khufu. Um, the bird represents the letter U, the viper or the snake represents F, and the other bird is the other U, so that represents Khufu. Okay, so when Colonel uh, Weiss blasts his way into the chamber, finds this cartouche bearing the, the name of Khufu, or Cheops as the Greeks call him, uh, that was just further corroborating evidence of what Herodotus and Josephus and, and others had said all along, that the Great Pyramid was built by Khufu Khufu in the 4th dynasty around 2550 B.C., case closed. Yeah, because Egyptologists knew when Khufu lived, this cartouche was allegedly found in the sealed chamber. Ergo, you know, by extension, the pyramid was built you know, 2,550 B.C., case closed. Right. And further, uh, the belief was that the pyramid uh, was built as a burial, primarily as a burial chamber for the pharaoh, correct? Yeah, that, that um, was the, the, the belief um, in Vice's time and obviously right up until the, until the present day. But even in Vice's time, there were still people questioning you know, whether they were built as tombs or not, or as something else. But, the, you know, there's other narratives which have come down to us which suggest that there weren't tombs, but there were something else altogether. I don't know if we have time to get into that, but, you know, um, there, there were other, um, you know, stories and legends about what the pyramids were originally built as and that have come down to us. No remains of, of Pharaoh Khufu were ever found. I mean, these, these tombs would have been raided by tomb raiders long before Vice came on the scene. Well, that's the conventional narrative, Richard, that, you know, the, the reason that the mummified body of Khufu or any ancient Egyptian king was never found is because, you know, the tomb raiders came along and, um, you know, raided their tombs. But, you know, it's, it's a crazy thing indeed, you know, of the king's body. The king's body was the most important thing, the most precious thing. It had to be protected at all costs in ancient Egyptian religion because the king had to commune with the gods to make sure the Nile flooded, the crops grew, etc., etc. So protecting the king's body was paramount to the ancient Egyptian religion. So ask yourself the question, why would they then go and build the most massive advert to where the king's body was you know, that's ever been built in, in humanity. You know, this, this pyramid is nearly 500 feet tall. You know, it's like an advert to every tomb raider in the land. Here it is, guys. Come and get the booty. Right, right. I mean, has, uh, just a slight side road here, but has, have the remains of any pharaoh, whether we're talking Tutankhamun or Ramses, have any of them ever been located inside a, a king's chamber in a pyramid? No. Never. Tutankhamun... Um, is the only in situ um, king that has ever been found. But he's, his body was found in the Valley of the Kings in a, a shaft tomb that was buried deep into the mountainside in the Valley of the Kings. It's not in a pyramid. He's the only one that's ever been found, a king's body in situ, in its you know, original in situ state, undisturbed state. No bodies of any kings have been found in any of these pyramids. All right, so here it is, your um, uh, theory that this cartouche found stamped inside one of these chambers by Vice, Colonel Vice in 1837, bearing the name of Khufu, was a forgery. Now, others had before you, uh, most notably, of course, Zachariah Sitchin, who's very familiar to people uh, listening to this program, almost 40 years ago, uh, 
or maybe about maybe more more than 40 years ago in the stairway to heaven was making a similar claim talk to me about what Sitchin was saying about this cartouche Okay, um, this was, uh, I think it was his, uh, you're right, uh, his stairway to heaven, which was 1980, so that's what, about 37 years ago. Um, Sitchin essentially claimed that the marks that Colonel Weiss claimed to have discovered in these chambers were forgeries. Um, now, this, th- this claim only formed a very small and minor part of Sitchin's broader work. Um, Sitchin didn't have access to the kind of um, information that I have access to today um, or you know, he didn't have the means to, to, to present any of this new evidence that, that I've uncovered recently but you know, Sitchin did raise some valid points in his um, um, research the first thing he raised was that Davison's chamber this is the very first of these relie- relieving chambers that chamber had already been opened for about 70 years before Weiss went to Egypt. But the the interesting thing here, Richard, is that when you go into Davidson's chamber, there are none of these painted marks anywhere to be found in that chamber. And this chamber, remember, it's a relieving chamber and it's identical to all the other four chambers above it. Okay? No marks were found whatsoever. The only painted marks were found only in the chambers that Weiss blasted his way into. Which and these are the only marks found in any pyramid, you know, you know these these early old kingdom pyramids, so the, the giant so, pyramids. So these quarry marks, as they're known, uh, you would expect that if it, if that was standard procedure, something like a quarry mark, you know, you buy a painting, the artist's name is on it, and so forth, or if you buy a piece of pottery, the manufacturer's on the bottom, you would expect yep. if there are quarry marks. Uh, in the Giza pyramid, you would find quarry marks in different chambers and in, and, and in most other pyramids, but we do not. All right, we'll um, we'll take a time out, uh, Scott. When we get back, we will uh, dive deep into your evidence that the cartouche discovered by Colonel Weiss, which time stamps the pyramid of Giza at 2550 BCE, is a forgery, throwing the dating of the pyramid wide open. <laughs> More of my conversation with Scott Creighton when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. I've been telling you for months now how I start every morning with a 16-ounce glass of cold, refreshing pomegranate tea from GetTheTea.com. Well, my friends at GetTheTea have changed things up a little bit. I just got a new shipment, and now my Formula 13 pomegranate cleansing tea is called pomegranate super tea. It's a new, stronger formula. This new blend of tea contains some of the same ingredients that are in the life change teas, but with added natural pomegranate flavor and stevia to give it a natural, slightly sweetened taste. It makes for a very mild cleanse that helps rid your body of any intruders. It's all natural and caffeine free. Life change tea is not the same tea that you buy in the store off the shelf. Life Change Tea is eight powerful herbs blended together to maximize your health. And it's only available at GetTheTea.com. It's time to try the tea everyone's talking about. They have no competitors because nothing compares to these amazing herbal teas. Don't forget to use the code UNLIMITED and all your orders ship for free. It's time to get your tea from GetTheTea.com. you're staring up at the night sky ever wonder who's staring back no me either but i guess you better say it because of richard you know he's all wrapped up in this stuff <laughs> conspiracy unlimited with richard Serrett. we are back with scott creighton engineer and also the host of the alternative egyptology forum on abovetopsecret.com and his latest is the Great Pyramid Hoax, the conspiracy to conceal the history of ancient Egypt. So, have you been into the King's Chamber? Have you seen the cartouche for yourself, Scott? I've been inside the King's Chamber, Richard, but unfortunately I did not have permission to get into the relieving chambers above the King's Chamber where these marks are. You really, really need a real difficult permit to get into these upper chambers, and it's a very, very difficult journey (laughs) through the narrow shaft 
vice made. That's curious. Uh, you would think that, you know, the king's chamber would be sort of the holy of holies, and you would think it would be more difficult to get in there, and yet these relieving chambers where these cartouches are stamped, that is more difficult to gain access to. I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm paranoid. It sounds suspicious to me. <laughs> Well, no, it's really more, um, when I say difficult, I'm talking more about its physical location within the pyramid. You need a ladder from the bottom of the king's chamber. You need a ladder that's about 25 feet tall, you know, just to get access to Davison's chamber. You know, it's a very precarious journey. Ah. It's quite a dangerous journey. So let's talk about, for you, this cartouche, it's a forgery. Why do you believe that? For a number of reasons, obviously, all, all the evidence is presented in the book. But let me just give you um, one example. Colonel Weiss published his official account, but he also had a private journal, his handwritten field notes of his time when he was at Giza, and he used those field notes to write his final published account of his operations at Giza. The final account was published in 1840, but his field notes are dated to 1837. Now, when you read Colonel Weiss's published account, he tells us consistently throughout it that he desired to make an important discovery. He wanted to find a cartouche specifically that would help date the pyramids. That's in his published account. Now, when you go to look at his private journal, as I did, I managed to track his private journal, his handwritten notes. They're located in a small archive library in the north of London. I found these and I was reading through them. I managed to find the first chamber that Colonel Weiss entered was Wellington's chamber. This was the first chamber that he managed to blast his way into with gunpowder. Now, when he visited this chamber on two occasions, on the second occasion, he writes in his private notes that there was nothing in the chamber that looked like hieroglyphics. Now, when Weiss uses the term hieroglyphics, he's talking about these quarry marks. Right. Um, these are the marks that the gangs would paint their gang name, their crew name, onto their block that they cut. They took pride in these, so they made sure that their gang name was stamped on these blocks or painted onto these blocks. So Weiss tells us there was nothing in this chamber, Wellington's chamber, that looked like that. And then three years later, we find in his published account of the very same night, Richard, the very same night, remember, this guy's wanting to find a cartouche. He writes in his published book, on this night we found the quarry marks. In Wellington's chamber? In Wellington's chamber. The same, same chamber night. that he said he found nothing in earlier? Yes. And his private notes, his private thoughts of his time at Giza, so we know that's authentic, that's his real thoughts. He found nothing. And then in his published book, he says he found the quarry marks. And then when you go and look to see, well, what quarry marks had he found, he got one of his assistants to basically copy the quarry marks that were allegedly painted in these chambers. And when you go and look at the quarry marks from Wellington's chamber, what do you find? A cartouche. And that's the very thing Vice wanted to find. And the remarkable thing is, in his private notes, there's not a single mention of him finding a cartouche. And that was the very thing he wanted to find. Right. There's so no that... eureka moment, nothing, completely silent. And yet he found a cartouche allegedly. Very suspicious, very suspicious. Now, these are painted on in okra, which yes. is a dye derived from vegetables. Uh, well, it, it's, would it be... it's iron oxide. Okay, iron oxide. Okay. Yeah. So would it would it not be possible to carbon date the okra cartouche in Wellington's chamber and elsewhere to see if it if it fits into that 2550 BCE time period? Yeah. Well, this is the thing that I don't know if you recall the two German graduates from um, university in Germany. I think it was 2013. They took some um, well, illegally took some ochre paint from one of the um, high hieroglyphic signs, hieratic signs um, from Campbell's chamber, not the cartouche, a much less significant um, sign that had been painted onto one of the walls there. They took the ochre paint because sometimes what the ancient Egyptians would do is they would put, add honey or gum or fish oil to because iron oxide, you can't carbon date iron oxide, it's not organic, but the ancient Egyptians would put an organic binding agent like ah. gum or honey or something like that to, to help bind the ochre paint. And they hoped that they would be able to test the organic material in the ochre paint, but they didn't have sufficient 
quantity ah, um, to right. have it carbonated. Carbon Earlier, uh, Scott, we were talking about the uh, the two German lads who uh, snuck into the chamber, I guess, and scraped away some of the iron oxide on the cartouche in hoping they were hoping to carbon date it, but there wasn't enough binding material, gum or resin or honey, in order to obtain you know an accurate carbon dating. So uh, that's a dead end. What else, though, about the cartouche leads you to believe that Weiss forged it? You mentioned earlier that in his private notes, in his journal, he wrote when he went into the Wellington chamber, he was looking, hoping to find the cartouche. He didn't find it. And then three years later, when it was published for public consumption, he claims all of a sudden that he found the cartouche in Wellington's chamber, which is which is suspicious. What else about the cartouche itself? Are there any inconsistencies with any of the symbols, for example? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, right, so what you find, um, particularly in, in, right across there, was something like, um, I think it was about six cartouches found in all throughout these, these various chambers. And what you find is when you do an analysis of the actual signs used, because what you have to understand is that hieratic um, writing is just a hieratic script, it's, basically just hieroglyphics that are painted as opposed to being carved, okay? Hieroglyphics are carved, hieratic is painted or are written, okay? Now, what you find is that over time, at the beginning, hieratic script is very much like, you know, the actual hieroglyphics. But over time, the hieratic script changed, it evolved, it became ever more simplified for speed of writing. It was basically the everyday writing that the ancient Egyptians would use as this hieratic script. And as I said, over time, it would change, it would vary. And eventually, it would come into what was known as demotic script, which is basically bears no resemblance to hieroglyphics whatsoever. So we've got this, this change, and we know roughly when these signs evolved and changed from one into the other into the other. Now, what you find when you look at the signs in these cartouches is that Many of them are from dynasties that are much later, from the 11th, 12th, or from about the 8th to the 12th dynasties. You know, that's long after the 4th dynasty. So there we have, you know, uh, you know, unless the ancient Egyptians, you know, had a time machine to get into the future to see what these signs would look like, you know, you know, uh, several hundred years down the road and come back and, you know, it's just, it's just nonsense. Not only that, but, you know, so you've got anachronistic signs being used within the cartouche. You've also got the cartouches being written um, horizontally. Now, the actual text is horizontal, whereas in the Fourth Dynasty, this text would have been written vertically. That's a pretty, so these, glar- that's a pretty glaring mistake. Yes, absolutely. This is why I, you know, I see in the book, um, Richard, that you know, the authorities must know these are fake. They have to know. They must know because that is so glaring and so obvious. But they say nothing. They say nothing. But they must know. And in fact, I know that they know that they're fake because I've had Egyptologists email me personally. And I can't divulge who these Egyptologists are because, you know, you know, I wouldn't put their, their careers or their jobs, or their, their, their living in jeopardy, you know. But they have said to me, you're right. We know they're fake. What about Vice's uh, team members, those that accompanied him? Uh, did any of his, uh, those that were, were part of his archaeological team, did they, did they write journals? Did they talk about, uh, about this? And is there, are there any clues there? Well, what we have is we have um, his two main assistants were a guy called Raven and a guy called Hill. Raven and Hill. <laughs> Great name. Yep. Now these two guys. Um, uh, are mentioned by another guy called Humphreys Brewer. He was an eyewitness to this forgery, okay? And this guy, Humphreys Brewer, was with um, this team in 1837. He ended up in Giza by accident. He was there to work in a hospital. It fell through, didn't go ahead, and he ended up working with Vice and his team. Now, we know this because this is one of the things that uh, Zechariah Sitchin uh, wrote in his um, Journeys to the Mythical Past, 2007, um, a chap by the name of Walter Allen got in touch with uh, Zechariah and explained this to him that his great-grandfather 
um, Humphreys Brewer had worked with Vice at the pyramids and saw this forgery taking place. So we've got that testimony that's been handed down, and he basically says that Mr. Raven and Mr. Hill were um, repainting some faint marks, but also painting new marks. Ah. Aha. That's pretty damning. That's pretty damning stuff. Yeah. So we have have an eyewitness as well, you know, from, you know... um, this Humphreys Brewer who saw Raven and Hill. But not only that, in Vice's journal, in his, not in his published book, because he's not going to put this kind of stuff in his published book. This guy Brewer isn't mentioned in his published book because he basically accused Vice of you know, um, this forgery. So Vice is not going to be writing about Humphreys Brewer. This is why this guy's name is missing in Vice's published account. But if you look at his private account... I've seen a few examples of what appears to be, remember I said at the top of the programme, his handwriting is really, really difficult to read, but there there does look like a few examples of the name Brewer being mentioned in his private notes. But in his private notes, he actually writes, he actually writes this, for Raven and Hill, you know, um, these are the marks, this is the cartouche that I want um, to be placed in Campbell's chamber. That I want to be placed that he wants Raven and Hill to place in Campbell's chamber. Well, <laughs> I mean, right there, that's an admission of guilt. It's, it's in the guy's diary. Now... It's not in his published book, of course. He's not no, going to put no, that no. in his published book. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised that his private journals survived the fire, uh, that they weren't destroyed, um, because that he's basically damned his... You know, it's pretty damning evidence. Yeah, it's damning evidence, but the thing is... Um, you know, you hold on to diaries or your personal stuff. You know, in 1837, you know, <laughs> it's like maybe he did plan to get you know rid of it. Maybe he did plan to to burn these pages. Who knows? But maybe he died the day before he did it. You know, <laughs> the the point is the stuff did survive, and um, it is pretty damning evidence um, from his um, private journals. But there's a whole load of other stuff from his private journals, Richard, which obviously are, are, I present in the book, which show that you know this this was a clear a clear hoax, a clear fraud. Several weeks ago, I had a, a gentleman from Nexus Magazine who is a photographer, and he was is not related to this topic, but I am going someplace, so bear with me. He wanted to present photographic evidence that he believes proved the lunar landings were a hoax. He said there's no way they could have taken those photos on the moon with a Hasselblad camera under these conditions and so forth. Well, he took his case to the Interplanetary Science Association or Council or whatever it's called in London. Is there sort of an equivalent Egyptology-type association where you can go and present your, your argument? That's an interesting question. I've, uh, it's not something I've um, considered because it's not something I've ever actually come across. And, you know, I do a lot of research an awful lot of research, and it's it's really not something that um, I've I've come across. I don't think there's a sort of um, um, arbitration service, if you could call it that, for you know matters um, Egyptology. You know, so uh, probably not, Richard. I wouldn't I wouldn't think so. Well, what uh, about think what about publishing in a peer-reviewed archaeological journal? Again, I think um, that's that's difficult because to do that you need to be um, you need to be part of a, you know a university you need to be attached in some way to a university or or whatever and you know my research is purely um, independent I'm an independent researcher not um, attached to any official academic body um, so I'm very much on the outside and you know as I said I, to be honest, I actually prefer that because it gives me the freedom um, to do things and go places where, you know, orthodox people really can't, you know. But the orthodox, archaeo- the orthodox Egyptologists, the, your critics, have they come after you? Have they tried to argue that, are they trying to attempt to find some fault in your, in your theory? Um, well, not yet, because the book's only um, just out, um, uh, came out, uh, I think, the 15th of December, so it's fairly, you know, it's still very new. 
And um, I'm basically waiting for the backlash, Richard, and it will come. Oh, yes. But, you know, <laughs> I have the evidence to back up what I'm saying. The book, there's a ton of evidence. I mean, I've only scratched the surface tonight in our discussion here. There's a ton of evidence which shows that, um, you know, I'm talking about a chemical analysis as well, not of the actual paint marks, but the, the, there's other chemical analysis which has been done, which show categorically that those marks are fake. You know, we've got the journal, we've got the eyewitness, we've got, a, you know, that's just, as I said, a few things. Read the book, there's an absolute ton of evidence, anachronistic signs, you know, from the future, you know. It's, it's, it's just a complete mess. And as I said, Egyptology, they must know, and I do know they know because I've had Egyptologists email me saying, yes, you're right, and we do know. But they're afraid to go public. They don't want to go public because, you know, for them it's a, the way I, the way I describe it, it's a, it's a convenient untruth for them. It helps them maintain the status quo. Well, yeah, that's, that's key, the, st- the status quo. Uh, in other words, if something doesn't fit the, the timeline of our, our ancient past, then it has to be discarded. And one, one has to wonder, uh, given this hoax, and I think you've made uh, as a, a pretty compelling argument. I mean, uh, one could almost say case closed that Vice's um, cartouche is a forgery, and therefore the entire uh, historical context of the Great Pyramid, pyramid is thrown into question. Um, one has to wonder then how much, how much, how many other things in terms of uh, ancient sites and construction dates and the dating of certain civilizations are also thrown open to question. Well, yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. You know, this, this place is you know, a big, big question. This reopens the case of the Great Pyramid. You know, who built it? Who really built it? And when was it really built? And also, the why. Why was it done? You know, so that this evidence you know, pulls a rug um, from, this is what Graham Hancock said the other day in a, in a tweet, the evidence in this book, it just pulls a rug from under the conventional narrative completely away, and, you know, the house of cars that was built there, you know, it just, it just crumbles. But, you know, you look at people like um, Virginia Steen McIntyre, you know, she's been um, arguing for about the last 20 or 30 years about a site in Mexico, you know, they've the found, um, you know, uh, tools there, you know, and the, the layers of earth that date these tools to 250,000 years ago. But, you know, science, no, that's impossible. That, that just has to be wrong. You know, they're not even accepting their own science. You know, it's crazy. And then I think about 10 years ago, they went back to the site and ran the same tests and, and more tests and different tests and got the same result. Yeah, 250,000 years ago, there was people in Mexico. You know, we're not supposed to have crossed a land bridge until, what, about 19,000, 20,000 years ago. You know, so it just, but science, <laughs> when they find something that contradicts the conventional narrative, the conventional chronology timeline, it, they just throw it, they just, well, this it, is what it people, just doesn't make it through the knowledge filter. This is what people need to understand about science, all fields of science. It is very, very political, and yes. obviously... Uh, the field of Egyptology, perhaps more so than many other fields. Scott, congratulations on uh, the Great Pyramid hoax. Keep doing what you're doing, uh, and uh, perhaps in your next book, do you, do you think that maybe you'll you'll uh, start to look into maybe when the Great Pyramid at Giza was constructed and why? Yeah, well, I've actually done that already. <laughs> That's in my previous book, The Secret ah. Chamber of Osiris. All right, now I got to backtrack and read that one. All right, <laughs> Scott, thank you so much for this. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Richard. I've enjoyed our our chat tonight. Likewise, my friend. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back on the other side to share a few details about an upcoming episode. Since the mighty Aphrodite and I have been taking ESS-60, the purest form of carbon-60, we're thrilled to tell you we're both sleeping well and pain-free. 
ESS60 is raw carbon 60 that's been produced, certified, and guaranteed for safer human consumption. C60 is a mega antioxidant and is known to have 172 times the antioxidant power of vitamin C, 172 times. ESS60 is the carbon 60 formulation used in the 2012 original Paris study that showed ESS60 doubled the lifespan of rats. That's right, doubled their lifespan. I'm so proud to be associated with my good friends at C60Evo.com. Their scientists invented the only reactor machine of its kind to produce carbon-60 back in 1991. They've been a top producer and distributor of C60 worldwide ever since. And the demand has been astounding. ESS60 from C60Evo.com is available in 4, 8, 16, and 32-ounce bottles. Choose from single bottles, monthly subscriptions, or cases of 12 bottles. ESS60, the purest form of carbon-60 available. Get yours at c60evo.com slash ref slash rs1 c60evo.com slash ref slash rs1 use the promo code rs1spec rs1spec to get five percent off ess60 from c60evo.com coming up next time are high-placed Freemasons trying to recreate the Temple of Solomon whenever and wherever they can? Dr. Frank Albo, an architectural historian, believes he's uncovered the Hermetic Code hidden in plain sight of architecture, landscape, and design of public spaces. He contained in one building this kind of encyclopedia of world architecture as an homage to the craft of Freemasonry. And in that regard, there is one building that stands alone as the beau ideal of perfection, and that's King Solomon's Temple. And that's where he chose to incorporate perhaps the most important room in the building as a perfect reconstruction of the Holy of Holies of King Solomon's Temple with a replica Ark of the Covenant. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.